Welcome to the Loud and Clear podcast for people who give a shit about advertising. We are coming to you from Dallas, Texas at Richard's Lerma, a multicultural advertising agency. I am one of your co-hosts today, Emily Puig, digital strategist here at Lerma, and I am joined today by my lovely co-host... Alvaro Polanco, and I'm a brand manager here at Richard's Lerma. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Thaddeus Matula. He's an Emmy and Peabody award-winning director. That includes two ESPN 30 for 30 films, in addition to many projects for HBO, BBC, PBS, the Grammys, and the NFL. Obviously amongst that many more. In 2010, he directed the Peabody award-winning film Pony Excess about the NCAA-mandated death penalty on the SMU football program. Uh, when the film debuted on ESPN in December of that year, after the Heisman Trophy presentation, it landed as the highest rated documentary premiere in the network's history. And Texas Monthly named it one of the 10 best films about Texas. He followed it up in 2014, reteaming with ESPN to direct the Emmy winning Brian and the Boz, a father and son story about the dual personalities of the gifted and conflicted University of Oklahoma and Seattle Seahawks linebacker Brian Bosworth. The film is credited with turning the tide of public perception and landed Brian Bosworth into the College Football Hall of Fame. In 2019, Matula is excited to be returning to his narrative writing and directing roots with the production of the feature-length version of The Dreamer, the full epic realization of his college-era 1999 science fiction short film of the same name that first brought him international renowned fame. Did we miss anything? You did, you, you <laughs> did actually, but it sounds like I'm, I've done some good things, huh? Uh, we agree. Uh, well, it, it's cool. I, I, I am that guy. So the last thing you mentioned was The Dreamer, which is, you know, this, this story that's so fun fundamental to me when this this uh, these bio notes were written it was like 2017 or 2018 or it was about to be 2019 whatever <laughs> it was but like in order to get to the dreamer this this film that I want to do in a, in a large manner I've now started a new company here in Dallas and we're starting with four films none of which are the dreamer um, but we're, we're, we're doing all of these sort of like uh, these these four films on a tight budget because what I want to be able to do is I want to show my investors that I can make their money back uh, and so that I'm not just going in for $15 million or $35 million for this one film. So the time to make money in film might be happening right now, like the only time uh, because of the explosion and all these uh, um, streaming services. So we're, we're utilizing that and I'm being business savvy so I can jump in now and then make that hopefully epic transcendental uh, yep. science fiction film. It's the first of a trilogy, so, you know. We, we look forward to all three and, and everything in between then and now. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you just brought up something really interesting. You are just now starting this, you're just now uh, refounding this this company in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. Why Dallas? I think that's something that we as advertisers get asked a lot. Why Dallas? Why not New York, Chicago, whatever. Um, why why Dallas? Why not L.A.? Well, Dallas is a is a is a really livable city. Um, it's easy to get around, and it's got everything that you want from a giant city. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have the physical beauty. That's kind of like the the knock on it. And I mean, I love the ocean, and and that it doesn't have it. And I was living in Austin. Austin doesn't have 
that uh-huh. either. The airport here is really is really a port to the world, you know, and, and being able to be right in the middle of the country, you can easily get to meetings in New York or Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, Dallas, when I was growing up, a lot of people, like-minded people like me, they all wanted to leave Dallas because it wasn't, uh, it was a very um, conservative uh, place. But I really found that it's, it's much more progressive now and it's, 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 it's much easier to have, even in this time when we're so uh, separated uh, politically, it's much easier to have differing opinions now, specifically in Dallas, than, it, than it was before. And as to why Dallas, I so I lived in Austin for 14 years, and I the reason I chose Austin over Los Angeles or someplace else is that when I was in college, I would go to South by Southwest each year. Um, and they, it matched up right with my spring break, and I got the student pass. But during that time, and right at the end of college, uh, I had I had a film play out in L.A., and I had reason to be out there. And I had reason to be down in Austin. What I was experiencing in L.A. was that in both places, people were just sensing that I had talent, which is a cool thing to feel. But the response in L.A. was was to sort of shun it because it's like, we don't want you taking our jobs, at least of the people of my generation. Um, and the response in Austin was, why don't you come here and we can make this together? And, and that, that idea of like being creative together was, was very appealing. The Austin that I moved to didn't end up being what I had hoped for or, or thought it was going to be because the weekend I moved there, Katrina happened. And mm-hmm. with Katrina, um, Louisiana and New Mexico, or Louisiana to rebuild, brought in tax incentives. New Mexico matched them. Texas at the time did not. And so all of the the funding went elsewhere. So also why Dallas is now Texas is doing tax incentives. Uh, but but for me, the biggest thing is, is that in all those years living in, in Austin, there was advice that I couldn't take. And it was people telling me uh, or, or advising, you should just plant a flag in Austin and say, this is my spot and this is where I'm doing it. And it just, it just never felt yeah. right. I mean, uh, it's not that I wasn't needed in Austin, but in returning here, I, f- I feel needed. You know, I feel like there's, there's something that I can contribute here, which, I mean, there's something I can contribute anywhere. I, I, I understand that. But, like, you know, this, this is where I'm from. This is my DNA. This is, you know, uh, um, I just love being here. And I love going to, to my high school and just saying, how can I help? And I, I went over to SMU and I'm like, I want to be an adjunct here. I want to bring the things that I didn't have when I was in school. I, I met yesterday morning with the alumni director of my high school sister school because I went to an all-guy school. I went to the Jesuit and I'm like, how can I help Ursuline? And, uh, you know, and so like, hey, Cistercian uh, Episcopal School of Dallas, anybody else out there? Or public schools. Come on, I started in public schools. I, I want to, I want to help. I often think about what I do in film as like a light shining through me so others may see, and I try to, to live that. I mean, I'm just sort of like, I see the films that I quote unquote make as they're already made. They're already out there. And I simply just maybe see them a little better in the beginning. I start clearing away 
the things around it, and I bring in people to help me clear the things around it, but that whole idea of, of a light to shine through that others may see, that's, you know, what I bring in the film projects, but I, I, I work to live that because mm-hmm. I work very hard on being in the present, being able to access joy, <laughs> um, and, and for me, there's a lot that goes into it. So I used to be very... Um, ungrateful about being good at at being a filmmaker because I grew up I had uh, surgical trauma which I know I know now know from when I was an infant and I had clinical depression so I didn't know how to be happy growing up I didn't know how to have friends I I had very few of them I had very little happiness Um, I found my joy often only in uh, staying home sick from school and watching Star Wars uh, and because I could go to a place where the good guys won. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to feel because I couldn't be happy or couldn't find joy as, as a child that, that I was, you know, some sort of, I, t- to, to be honest, some sort of devil spawn because I grew up in a Catholic family and if I'm like, if I'm doing everything that they're telling me to do and I'm like following these rules, I should be happy, shouldn't I? And when I wasn't, so I spent a lot of time, when I went to college, I I couldn't wait to to be a filmmaker. I always wanted to be that. And when I was going to film school, I was just like, all right, it's going to begin, you know? And they didn't give me a camera immediately. And I was like, no, I've got to do this. But so like, so that sort of, I've got to do this and me then doing it and, and the films immediately being recognized as being good, I then had this complex starting off immediately of like, um, I don't deserve to be good at something. And so all of this idea of deserving joy or deserving to be good, it's just seeing everything as, as gifts and, and now understanding that I had I have been given a, a gift uh, and I, has, I have to give it away. That's amazing that you're talking about, first of all, coming back here just because of your roots, your home. But at the same time, there's something so much bigger there, like the giving back, the retribution to, first of all, the people that you knew when you were younger. But I feel the world right now is going through something like that, where people are saying, what is eternal happiness? What is getting there? And I feel most people are realizing sometimes it's more of the journey. And like you said, you found joy in the things that were given to you. And now you're finding your way to bring them back. So I find that extremely valuable. And I think that also naturally, just looking at Dallas, Texas, I feel like a lot of people, their narratives and their storylines are bringing them here because of that. You keep seeing countless people from California, people from New York that are moving here. And that's why those markets are emerging so much more. So I I am here because I decided that I needed to be in Los Angeles more often. And I know that sounds weird, um, but like (laughs) I just know that I'm supposed to do the biggest films and that sounds kind of woo-woo, I know, and, and I because it sounds woo-woo, I used to react against it and not sort of go towards these woo-woo type thoughts. And I, if you I, have the opportunity, right. why not? And yeah. you have DFW here, you can fly out Well, but you, But so, like, yeah, the thing was is that, like, after I decided that, like, okay, I'm either going to move to Los Angeles now or just be very intentional about, about going out there, uh, I came back to Texas after a month working on a a screenplay for this film that I'm shooting at the beginning of next year, which we can talk about in a bit, called Sheepdog, Uh, and we'd already decided that we were going to shoot it in in Dallas. We were going to use South Dallas, uh, sub it for Detroit, but, you know, like, I always joke 
uh, if it worked for RoboCop, it would work for us because <laughs> they, they shot RoboCop here. And I remember that burned out gas station that was down the road from where we are right now that was there burned out for years um, because they burned it out in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea was that, like, look, I can now... Uh, Something really cool happened while I was out in Los Angeles for that month doing the rewrite of the screenplay. We had very few days off, but the days that we did, uh, there wasn't a meeting I couldn't get, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't like I was trying to meet with David Geffen, but like I just anybody I thought of, like I would like to meet with so and so. It was really cool to sort of realize that like. Um, being fortunate enough to be recognized with an Emmy and a Peabody, those are big deals here in Texas. Um, but it was also cool to find their big deals in Los Angeles too. Absolutely. You know, and so and then I didn't I didn't have to go through the the just the the, the ocean of broken dreams to get to the to, to the people that I needed to speak to because there's a lot of people who who aren't living what they want to be living, and it, it, it very much makes them caustic and bitter, and those are people who you have to get through often to get to the people who, who might be able to make a decision. And, uh, and so just to be talking to real people, people that you would, you would imagine going to their kid's soccer game uh, was, was awesome. So I came back to Texas, and I was like, all right, August, I'm going to move to Los Angeles or I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to get a smaller place here and have a smaller place out there. The first three weeks I'm back in Texas, each of the, those three weeks I have reason to be in Dallas. And I'd already been thinking when I shoot this film next year, maybe I'll move a few months early just to spend some time with my sports teams because <laughs> I, I love sports, but I do not love the Longhorns. So I had real trouble in Austin because uh, that's the only option. But yeah, so I was like, I'll move next to the arena here. And, and, <laughs> and, and But anyway, so I already had that kind of in my mind that like I'd like to spend a few months back here. But those first three weeks back in Texas after that month, I'm up here each of the first three weeks, and I, uh, I just decide, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna move here. As soon as I make that decision, um, I get a call from a buddy of mine who lives in Canada these days. I don't care what your politics are, but this guy said if Donald Trump gets elected, I'm moving to Canada, and he actually did it. So <laughs> you know, uh, you gotta, you gotta respect like yeah, the follow through. Uh, um, he, he, I knew him from the film community in in Austin, but he, I didn't. Know him from Dallas, but he had been in Dallas before Austin. He had moved from Dallas to Austin to do uh, film in addition to the video games he had already done. And I bring all this up because he calls me up and says his old partner in the video game industry uh, who lives in Dallas and still works in Dallas wanted to talk about film. Um, and so uh, we start to get to talking and I'm like, I'll be back in Dallas uh, next week. Why don't we meet up? And we start talking a little bit more, and he tells me, you know, if I've got one superpower, it's raising money. And I was like, well, I can tell what we're going to be... wonderful superpower. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can tell we're going to be friends. Yeah. And, then, and then he starts hearing more about what I'm doing, and he's like, we should build a company around what you're doing. I'm like, you are right. We should build a company around what, what, what I'm doing. And so sometimes the universe doesn't just hint do this it sometimes puts up bright neon lights like mm -hmm. move to dallas this is where you're supposed to be and i really i feel it i i think i could have been fine never having come back but in coming back i feel there are so many loops that i can close that i didn't know that i that i that that were that i would have the opportunity or were even there and it's 
I feel like William Wallace, right at the beginning of Braveheart, it ended poorly for William <laughs> Wallace, but like, you know, coming home after he was in Rome and whatnot, and just, uh, uh, you know, uh, to sort of like be back with his people, but then do what he can <laughs> for his people. The whole execution scene of William Wallace, that won't happen We're to me. We're going to miss that part. But, right? but, yeah. wow. but, but it does happen in The Dreamer, <laughs> so it happens to someone else, metaphorically. Yeah. You'll, you'll see that visual someday. Eventually. I wanted to ask about these windows opening, how you said that all of a sudden it was talking to one person, then to another. Um, I was watching Pony Excess, um, the 30 for 30, and what I kept asking myself, especially for the boosters from SMU, but also anyone, Skip Bayless, um, Dale Hansen, what is it like to have that window open where that person's going to come and talk to you about something that is delicate? And especially, it should also, I feel it might be delicate to you too, since you're such a huge SMU fan. It's, it's just very interesting to me how you were able to first access them, but also how you got them to talk. Well, you know, I, I'm a very passionate individual, and and people can see that I'm... I'm I, I'm not often false with my passion, and so like, if I can just get into a conversation with with some of these individuals, they will uh, and are willing to talk to me. And and like for a lot of the people that aren't in the media, June Sheldon Jones the third, he was the coach of SMU, and he got it immediately what I wanted to do. And and he's he's he definitely has an eye for sort of like media savviness um, but he called all these people former players and said talk to Thaddeus I mean that's how we got Eric Dickerson mm-hmm. um, Eric uh, got us Craig James uh, you know some of the people who really drive us through the film in the middle are people that that June personally called and said do this um, and then in terms of the media though it's it, you know they're they're the media position on this is skewed because of how much was reported on SMU. And because so much was reported, there's always this thought that, that, that for a lot of them that SMU was so much worse. Um, but you, and it's, I mean, especially the people who know of the story, but it's, you talk to other reporters of the same time who were in different locations they couldn't report on mm-hmm. on issues of their local school because the it's it's said in the movie that sports sections sell the newspaper mm-hmm. right and so like you can't go with yeah, I don't know what the Waco paper is Waco Tribune um, exactly that yeah, you can't <laughs> you can't like you can't just go to the parking lot and start writing down um, uh, license plate numbers and looking it up which is what they did at SMU to sort of see what was going on I mean. Speaking of Baylor very specifically, I was in this conversation and like one that there were two people from Baylor and one of them was like, I, you know, we were, we were, I can't believe you were, you guys were, were that bad or whatever. And, and the other guy says, you remember when we were getting wins in the eighties? Did you, did you go to our parking lot then? <laughs> <laughs> you could see it. Cause yeah, there it says that it was because of Dallas morning news. They were there. They said, who are the people that are closest to us? We can get there in a bicycle ride, yep. SMU campus. Because if not, the focus would have been put either on UT, um, Oklahoma. There's so many options that they could have talked about. I mean, I want to get back to your specific question, <laughs> though, like with like talking to them. It was so exciting for me, though, to talk to all of these people, to just get this story out there. It's so amazing. It's the last great newspaper war in this country. You know, it's, it, there were... 
uh, things that existed within Dallas that didn't exist anywhere else. And it was it was Dallas in its heyday, in its most sort of like um, J.R. Ewing phase, yeah. you know. And, and like what a fun time to sort of revisit. I was only nervous um, in the reaction of the, of, I guess, the university itself because uh, I, I was not terribly nervous about how the people I was interviewing would receive my questions because uh, I was just fascinated in their answers. <laughs> and remaining passionate about something is obviously something that shows up across all of your work. We uh, just listened to you speak downstairs to the entire agency and, and speak about uh, being passionate about something and, and fully de dedicating yourself to it. One of the things that we do at this agency is we work on a lot of different projects. Um, and it can be really hard to throw yourself into every single one of those, especially when they're all coming. One minute I'm thinking about this client, then this one, then this project, then this thing. How do you stay creatively available to do all of those different things? You've got a really interesting list of things that you've worked on. Documentaries, sci-fi films, they're all very diverse. How do you remain passionate and remain creatively inspired? It's difficult. The The thing is, is that I find that, like, in order to get through things, I have to be halfway committed, like, uh, on many days where I'm just committed to this and committed to this and committed to this. But, like, when I need to make real progress, like, I've, I've got to just lock in for a few days and, uh, you know, actually getting money to do these things then allows me to lock in a little bit more for a longer period of time. But um, it it can be tiring. I mean, this is also why this whole you know, path to joy that I've talked about uh, and being in the present, why it's been able to help me so much because I, I have so much to do and so many balls to keep in the air because, like, I'm not, I don't have a safety net paying me, right? Yeah. You know, I've got to pay bills. <laughs> I have found that I have to be leading the charge in these sort of like uh, getting these projects to a certain state in order for them to, to happen. And so being available, um, the, the ability to do it without as much anxiety as I used to have is great. And all, and that is all about just being right here uh, and being grateful for the moment because there, there have been times in the last three weeks where I've, I've had like two months worth of work that I'd like to have done by tomorrow and, and I'm just slogging through it but I just have to be in the present because if I sit there and I think about all that I need to do and all the and, and how long things take because I know that um, some people might call me slow uh, but I call myself deliberate and it's an important distinction yeah well and understanding that and just saying like if I do things deliberately they turn out well and then when they're out nobody and and I've done things very quickly even though I'm being hard on myself ish um, but like but because I know it takes me a long time when I'm fully focused and also it's also a detriment to me starting because I know that like oh my goodness you know like I don't have six months to spend on this stuff and like I don't know how long it's going to take me so you know something you brought up that I just spoke into the organization um, the one thing that I brought up in that talk that I often bring up uh, anywhere is just like taking those first steps you know those like if 
so often we have the, the a goal in mind and we don't go towards it because we don't know what steps three through 997 look like. But we mm -hmm. might know what one and two look like and we know where we want to end, but we still don't take those first steps. And so creative availability is much more for me about this kind of Zen state, I, I'll say. I mean, like in a, in, in the U.S., we have this saying, "the pursuit of happiness," mm -hmm. and that's that's a lie. And I I found that out very much in in my personal life because I always wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, I do this film, Pony Excess. Um, it is amazingly well received. Uh, when when it comes out, I mean, there there are all of these accolades and. And I no longer had a, um, a descriptor, an adjective before filmmaker. I was no longer a young filmmaker or an aspiring filmmaker. I was a filmmaker. And I get to this point, and like, granted, uh, I, I, I at the time did not have a wife and the family and still don't, but like the things that I thought of when I was a kid were like uh, married, children and being a filmmaker, right? And and so I thought that like, if I got to be a filmmaker, that I could be happy. And like, my whole life really fell into the toilet uh, after Pony Excess because you get to this point and you're still not happy and you just, you, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't know what what could possibly keep me going? Um, and so I had to find out something that um, uh, you know everybody can find out. It's it's happiness is is, is right here. It's in your everyone deserves happiness simply by being here. You don't you don't need to stay in a miserable suffering state. And it's interesting now because I didn't know before how to choose different things. I could pretend to be happy, but I didn't know how to actually access the joy um, and, and so it's weird now that I say that I don't have the luxury of misery um, but like I don't because if I, I I will have bad days I'll have a bad few hours you know like where the anxiety gets to me and maybe I have to go somewhere and meditate you know um, and if I don't then I'm just messed up for the whole day um, but but the whole idea of like, if I stay in this cycle of not being in the present, because we spend a lot of time thinking about how we could have changed the past or what we want to do in the future, and we're, we're missing what's right in front of us. And that's the only thing that's real. And so like the more we're living in this, this past or this future, the farther away from reality where, I mean, those are varying degrees of fiction, the farther you, you get away from this moment. And so bringing myself back here looking around, taking in things and understanding that these that, that, that these are all gifts just for me. And they're all gifts just for you because you're experiencing them too. They're just for you. They are for you. And saying thank you for that, that just, uh, I mean, like, I, I, I feel like I'm in the beginning of my golden era of my career. Uh, so it's so awesome to be back here in Dallas. Uh, while I'm raising these funds, I actually moved back in with my folks. Uh, you heard that right. Um, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're 80 and 81 years old, um, and they live in the house that I was born into. And I have a second season of this NFL series that I'm working <laughs> on. It's not like I'm destitute. My dad was so excited that I was coming back so he could put the Emmy and the Peabody in the front hall. I was, I was <laughs> like, no, no, I'm, I'm coming too. But, like, <laughs> for me, why I'm bringing this up right now is that, like, I – having all of this 
at my disposal I, and feeling like this is where everything is is happening. Um, and if I do look into the future and say, well, maybe this is a 40, 50 year golden era that I'm at the beginning of, I know that my parents aren't going to be there for most of it. And so to, yeah. to be able to just actively have them enjoy yeah. this, I mean, it's, it's a very big process looking to raise $7 million. Uh, and, um, you know, and it could be taunting, and someone could say, "Well, yeah, I can't do it." But like, I'm just doing it, and the the again the the idea that like I can let my folks share in that joy, yeah. it's and that's a key part to any happiness. You need to have family involved. I wanted to take it to the NFL series you spoke mm -hmm. about. I know season one came out last year, and season two is upcoming now. But I think it's super interesting because you're talking about a topic there. That's talking about social justice, criminal reform, a lot of serious topics like that where people would think, okay, maybe something gets made about the NFL about that, but not financed by the NFL. So on our, in our industry where we work, we obviously have our clients, and usually they're the ones that are giving the say, they're giving the money. And I feel that maybe in your line of work, it's a similar relationship with the NFL because I was wondering how involved do they get in the creative process that you're working on there? Like, do they draw any lines? Do they raise any red flags? Because I don't know if this was an initiative started by them or maybe by Nate, but just to know. So uh, the, I mean, um, I was very fortunate to go to Jesuit here in Dallas and I told my parents whatever they paid for it was worth every penny because there have been a few times where just having those connections have been really key so my executive producer on Pony Excess was a guy I went to high school with Michael Hughes he's so talented I he he's won like 23 Emmys and I remember like 10 years ago he had run, won 14 I was like I don't know if I've bought 14 pairs of shoes <laughs> um, but he um, he is really one of the best if not the best in the business in terms of sports television um, and uh, uh, the NFL has a great relationship with him and so I had been working on this thing with Nate and we had we had found an investor Nate had found an investor um, but we we weren't ready to start because we needed we needed another investor or, 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 you know, it just wasn't right. And I finally was like, well, would you mind if I took this to my my people? And the day I sent this over to Mike Hughes, uh, the NFL had reached out to him with, with an idea for a social justice series. And he had that morning said, you know, that idea is not going to work. Um, um, and they were like, well, we want to do something. Can we send you over a list of, of, of concepts? And he said, sure, please do. And in the middle, I send him the deck for the, the Nate Boyer project, which he was aware of because um, he's a great resource in terms of sports TV stuff. So he already knew about this. But I send him to that day. And later that day, he gets a note from the NFL and lists all these different ideas and topics. And one of the the, the, the people that they might want to work with is Nate Boyer and he gets on the phone and he's like well I have a friend who <laughs> happens to have been working with Nate for a year and he just tells the NFL that Nate's your show you know we, we just follow Nate to these these cities and 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 we, we meet people and 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 Nate's sort of perspective and ability to sort of uh, live in the middle of all of these arguments is going to be so valuable and so um, the NFL has definitely given us bumpers um, but they haven't uh, given us walls, right? Okay. You know, and so um, the, 
you know, obviously they're 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 a multi-billion-dollar organization, and they're very focused on brand. And so the idea that they're even doing something like this is 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 a step farther than most people Absolutely. would imagine. Um, um, and I mean, we don't have like the the great budgets. We're not like you know Super Bowl commercial budgets mm-hmm. or anything. It's just sort of like, oh, will this be nice to, to have something? And so the. Any kind of any kind of bumpers that, that we get, I feel are worth it because what we're doing with Indivisible, I feel is we're telling uh, NPR type stories to an NFL audience. So we're getting stories that these <clears throat> individuals, they, the audience might not be normally exposed to and, 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 and being able to tell them. And so if there are some topics that are totally forbidden, uh, which we really haven't come into, because uh, um, we, we, we talk about Kaepernick kneeling in the first episode. We have, uh-huh. a, we have a conversation in Los Angeles in a veterans shelter. There's a lot of, there's a ton of homeless veterans in Los Angeles, but we had that conversation about like how the kneeling made th- these veterans feel and then what what is the power of protest and whatnot. And so they did not have us cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... So uh, there is a dance, but they've been, I guess, surprisingly um, allowing us to sort of um, find our way. And, I mean, it helps for them to have somebody like Mike Hughes um, um, being the the general of the whole thing because he's been an executive at at Fox, and so he's worked directly with the league, and he kind of already knows a, a dance. And so as we're starting to do ideas, he interjects. Yeah. But you know, and there's and there's trust in the quality of his work and the quality of your work that it's in good hands. <laughs> right, right, for sure, for sure. So unfortunately, we could absolutely sit here and talk to you all day, and we will probably do that after <laughs> we stop recording. But um, we do have to to start wrapping up soon. But there is something you said downstairs that we knew we absolutely had to talk to you about. You said a story is a contract with your audience. Mm-hmm. We are advertisers. We are storytellers. What does that mean to you as a filmmaker? Elaborate on that because we thought that was incredibly impactful. So uh, in film school, in art school, I had some uh, um, music majors that were my friends. And for a lot of these music majors, performance, composition majors, they really love Mahler. Mahler is their favorite composer. And I don't know if you've ever listened to Mahler, but it is very inaccessible. You know, you have to have a lot of knowledge about the music and the structure of music to be able to enjoy it at the same way that that, that these people who study music do. Uh, um, I want to make great films that are also good. And what I mean by that is like, um, I don't, I can't, I don't know enough about music, uh, about composition to enjoy that this stuff by Mahler is great. However, you can put on Beethoven for anyone. It doesn't matter what kind of music they like. This is yeah, this is good, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and 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 Shakespeare, he was obviously incredibly popular in his time, and we're still doing his stuff today. So, like, I spent 2017. Um, was it 2018? Uh, I think it was 2018 now that I bring it up. Uh, up until we did Indivisible, um, I gave myself a crash course on screenwriting. Not that I didn't know how to write and not that I could have done it without it, but like this is all like what can I do? It's following the steps. Uh, I learned in making these two documentaries that if I followed Shakespeare's five-act structure, which I did in terms of like setting out the film, that 
people responded to it. Now, obviously, I set aside the structure and, and I worked uh, through it, but then when I came back and looked at the structure again at the end, I could see all the bones through it. So when I was in film school, you know, when you're young and someone tells you there's all these rules you have to follow in order to tell this story or to do a movie by page 12, X has to happen, you don't want to hear that. You're like, I am too cool for that, right? right? You know, like, I've got all this talent. Who cares about that? But... I found in sort of following the thermodynamics of story that there are, there are things that, that people want in it. And so, I, again, I studied that because I want my audience to get something out of the film. Uh, and, 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 uh, and that's one enjoyment. But also, if I have a message, which I normally do, uh, they're not going to be available to it if I'm not meeting them, if I'm not giving them what they want. So the contract idea is very is very key to me because, you know, um, uh, expectations are a huge thing. Like expectations are what bring misery into your life because if you imagine just a conversation, like if you're going in for a job interview and you're expecting them to offer you the job and you expect them to give you to offer you at this this high price. Uh, and if you go in there and they offer you the job, but at a much lower level, you're you're unbelievably mad. Even though you thought you weren't even going to take the job anyway when mm -hmm. you went in, it's like they think that little of me. Um, so, so expectations as a whole, I work to not have, but I know that we all have them. And so, if I'm not actively looking at what does my audience want to get out of this, uh, then I'm not doing my job. Because again, I want to make great films that are also good. Yeah, and that's something that should be more universal across creators, uh, and maybe it isn't. So I, I thought having you say it out for the world to hear, now we just need to get everyone to listen to this podcast so they can hear it straight from you. Yes, <laughs> yes. especially with where the industry is going. I feel oversaturation now that we have so many streaming platforms, everything. It's beautiful because now everyone can make content. You see all types of content, but... Obviously, you'll get the good and the bad that comes with it. So, well, you can make content on your phone these days, um, and if you make it with the idea of uh, a contract with your audience, and you're not just like, "Oh, it's cool to, to to make this," then you can really get things that connect and build an audience, and and you know, and share the joy or the, the light you may have with, with the Share world. Share with the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing it with us today. Where can people find you online, Twitter, the gram? What are, what are you on? Where can people find you? At Thad Films. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Thad Films. Um, I'm also on the Book of a Thousand Faces or a Billion Faces, maybe, Facebook. I don't know. I don't know how many yeah. are there now. But that, you just find me under my name there. Um, uh, but uh, very soon, we're, we're, we're starting this company, Fire Ant Films. So, you know, uh, if you're listening to this months down the road, fireantfilms.com will be up and running. But as of right now, we are just in the fundraising uh, um, phase. phase. But also you can go to vimeo.com slash thatfilms, or you can see all of the Indivisible episodes from season one at nfl.com slash indivisible. Awesome. Well, we will definitely be checking those out, as should all of you. Thank you so much for listening in today to Loud and Clear Podcast. We hope you gave a shit. Uh, we certainly did. You can find us on all of the streaming platforms, uh, Spotify, iHeart, Apple, where you should definitely rate and review this podcast. 
And if you have a lot to say and you want to leave it somewhere other than the comment section of a podcast platform, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Richards Lerma. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear next, because we would love to hear from you. Until next time, though, thanks for joining in. Bye-bye.